Hello, friends. If you're hearing this intro, that means that I have now had a baby, which is very, very exciting. But it also means we will be taking a little break from new episodes through the summer. In the meantime, we thought it might be fun to revisit some of our favorite episodes from the early days of this podcast that you may have missed. We will be back in September with new episodes, and we look forward to being with you then. Thank you so much for listening and for your support always. A few years ago, Melinda Wilwright Brown began to be bothered by the gulf between the divine doctrine of gender relations and the difficult realities many women face. She started a serious search for increased understanding and insights to help her reconcile these contradictions and discrepancies. Now, four years later, her favorite scripture is Doctrine and Covenants 4261, which says, If thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. She hopes her new book, Eve and Adam, will offer readers a hopeful perspective on loving life. Melinda Wilwright Brown earned a bachelor's degree in economics from Brigham Young University and is a respected teacher and public speaker. She has a passion for solving problems and has been involved in several organizations, including Fight the New Drug, the Now I Can Foundation, Days for Girls, Better Days 2020, Big Ocean Women, and the Utah Valley University Women's Success Center. Melinda and her husband, Doug, are the parents of four children and some of her favorite things include sightseeing, sand dollars, and grandbabies. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question, what does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Morgan Jones, and I am so grateful to have Melinda Wilwright Brown here with me today, also known as Mindy. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Well, welcome. Thank you. We are so excited. I have been looking forward to this because I've been reading Mindy's book, which is called Eve and Adam. And it is remarkable. Like I've been telling everybody in our office, I'm like, this is going to be a big one. I, I was like, I know a win when I see one. And they've been making fun of me, but I really, I'd put money on it. I don't know if that, yeah. I'm not a gambling woman. <laughs> That's very sweet. That's very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> kind well, words. I I knew that we were going to be friends when I opened the book and I saw the reference to Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is one of my favorite books of all time. And you quote the book and it says, I remembered that the real world was wide and that a varied fields of hope and fears of sensations and excitements awaited those who had the courage to go forth into its expanse to seek real knowledge of life amidst its perils. Mindy, what did you hope? It's kind of an interesting choice to start a book about Eve and Adam with a quote from Jane Eyre. What did you hope to communicate through that? Well, first of all, I think I felt like drawing from the canon of great literature would maybe immediately help the reader recognize that this is a really applicable, broadly applicable story of Eve's and Adam's. And to just demonstrate that across time, cultures, everything, this is a story that resonates and has meaning in our lives. And I think that's something we often find in literature, right? It really speaks to us. And so, uh, like you, Jane Eyre's 
one of my absolute favorite books. It's the one I kind of keep on my nightstand. And sometimes I just open it up and read a few pages. I just love it. And I love the Brontes. I love all the sisters. I think their story is just remarkable. And so I, I had a hunch early on that I might find something in there that would be just right for this, but I'd been kind of looking everywhere for just the right thing. And I was really excited when I found this one and and realized just how totally perfect it is. I think it covers kind of three key elements of the thesis of my book, and that's why it fits so well. First of all is courage. It mentions courage. And mostly, I want to help people recognize that faithful courage is at the core of Eve's very brave choice to open the doorway to mortality for all of us. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that Jane really accurately describes the real why world. She uses the terms, the hopes and fears, the sensations and excitements, the joys and perils. And that just really sums up mortality. I mean, that's, that's it. We all know that. And it's meant to be that way. So I love her description because it captures the essence of what an amazing gift our bodies are and how working together with our spirits, we really get a powerful, meaningful learning experience. And To me, that's a huge part of this story that I'm trying to tell here and and apply to all of us. And then finally, her notion of real knowledge just really sums up my feelings about life, that there's something so unique and powerful about experiential learning that there's just no substitute for it, and that that's why this perfect plan includes a mortal experience. And then, of course, just overall and in a general sense, I just love Jane's grit, her determination and endurance, and it feels very Eve-like to me, and I think Jane and Eve would be very nice friends. So yeah, it was a good fit. And I love how you kind of continue that. You have other references to classic literature throughout the book. And I think that's so neat because I think obviously there have been pieces of classic literature written about Adam and Eve, but I also think it the, the story of Adam and Eve belongs in that mix of things. So I love that you did that. Mindy, from what I know you've kind of come out of nowhere. (laughs) I mean, obviously you came from somewhere, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how this book came to be. Okay. Well, so I went to Brigham Young University many years ago. Go Cougs. Yeah, I have a degree actually in economics. I have not taken writing courses, but I've always enjoyed writing and I've had a lot of experiences to do a lot of gospel writing and teaching in conjunction with different responsibilities and callings I've had, and also kind of as an assistant to some of the things my parents have been able to do. My father was the president of BYU-Hawaii for eight years, and that requires a lot of speaking engagements. Just, you know, the honest truth is just more than any one person could ever prepare all those talks and presentations for. And so I kind of was an assistant to them. And that was a fabulous experience to learn how to really tap into the spirit in presenting something in a way that people would be able to understand. And, you know, when you're speaking to a lot of young adult audiences, like, like they were, it just required a lot of clarity and it forced me to just really practice getting to a clear place in articulating an idea, and especially a theology and doctrinally based idea. And so that was that was huge in, yeah, in kind of the process of that. Yeah, very formative. And then I guess really it started, I've always been very interested in women's studies issues. And I've been involved with several great nonprofits and different organizations and helping women and girls of all ages. And so that was kind of 
a side thing that was going on for, you know, the past 20 years of my life. But about four years ago, and it's, it basically was a four-year project. We're just past the four-year mark, basically. My extended family and I were going through a challenging time, uh, searching for some clear answers to some really challenging questions. It was definitely a thorny patch. And none of our options felt ideal. And there just were really hard choices to be made. The specifics just don't even matter because I think we've all been there. We've all had those experiences and interpersonal relationships are just like that, especially the more people you add to the mix, the more absolutely some of those choices are going to be, right? And so we'd been working through some things for a couple of months and almost in desperation, maybe exasperation, maybe I was at my desk one day and I have a beautiful portrait of Eve that hangs across from my desk. And I just said, almost audibly, I said, oh, Eve, can you help me? And it was a it was a rare experience because I don't usually hear voices. The Spirit speaks to me maybe in different ways, feelings and ideas. But there was almost a clear voice there with her almost leaning out of the frame saying, yes, I thought you would never ask. And caused me such pause that I like stopped everything and started to dig in and go through some books and and figure out where did that come from? What, how in the world could this apply and help us in this situation? And really quickly within hours almost, there was clarity and understanding coming through. And it was, it led to some really great discussions between several family members and it just brought peace to us. We just kind of took it on a different perspective and it really helped. And it ended up that we were able to move forward and it was this beautiful experience. But I would say simultaneously with that happening, there was this confluence of the things I was learning in the women's studies field with all these organizations I was working with, um, just really getting into the trenches of some of the realities of the hard, awful, unfair, abusive things that happen to women around the world now and always have. And I think the juxtaposition of those two things happening in, in my life just presented me with this uh, almost a quandary of like, how do these two things fit? I feel the beauty of Eve's story, of her experiences, of how she can influence us. And yet I see these hard, awful things happening um, all, all around to women. And it was just tragic. It just seemed so tragic to me that I just felt like I want to do whatever it takes to get to the bottom of this. Like I have to make sense of this because I can't sleep at night. Like it's, mm-hmm. this is really bothersome to me. How are these things supposed to fit? And so that just opened up a ton of research, two solid years of researching. And at that time, it was really just for me. I, I thought, well, you know, this would at least be something meaningful to my family if I compiled this somehow. And it was kind of towards the end of that two-year period that I started to feel really compelled, like, no, there's this is for everybody. And I had talked to countless women about, various pieces of the story and, and this puzzle. And everybody was searching for these things that I was finding, not not that were terribly hidden even. And often I would say these things are hidden in plain sight, but they just haven't been compiled in a way that makes a really clear picture of how everything fits. Mm-hmm. And so that that became my goal. And so then I spent a year writing and then a year in the publishing process. And learned more than I ever expected to and had amazing experiences. And, you know, to be at this point, I just feel like it's a miracle (laughs) because I I really never thought. I mean, it just, 
that this wasn't what it started out as. So yeah. it's exciting. I love that so much. I think I, as somebody who would love to write a book, but just feels like I can't figure out what to write one about, I think it's amazing that it just kind of all came together. And then that you put in the work as somebody that's not even like a writer to do this. <laughs> I just think that's remarkable. And what a beautiful book you've created. I found it interesting as I, as I started reading, you cite some professors who I'm assuming are not members of our church. Is that correct? Is that a correct assumption? Um, yes. The ones I think you're referring to are not. Okay. Uh, there's throughout the book, there are lots of non-LDS scholars cited, but also a lot of LDS scholars that people will recognize their names. Okay. Yeah. So in the beginning, you talk about kind of how you kind of set the stage and frame the way that our society perceives the story of Eve. What did you learn about the way that people of other religions perceive her story? And then I guess together with that, how do we as Latter-day Saints, what's the juxtaposition there? Okay. Yeah, that that is a really interesting thing I started to discover bits and pieces of as I as I went through all this research. And really, my goal at the beginning was just to read every single thing I could get my hands on about it from, from everything, just everything I could find. And so I found a couple of women in particular. Nahama Ashkenazi is one who's written a great book called Eve's Journey. And um, she's really coming at it from the Judaic tradition. And then Carol Myers, who's a professor at Duke University, wrote one called Discovering Eve. And then there's a later edition called Rediscovering Eve. They're, they're wonderful. And so those two, I, that, those were kind of my launching place in terms of scholarly work outside of our faith tradition. And what I found is that in all these different religious backgrounds, there are scholars kind of bubbling up that are searching for the exact same things I was searching for, and we're finding those things. Interesting. So, you know, when I say this was hidden in plain sight, it was from all these different researchers turning up these ideas. And I think culturally, it's it's had some really sticky misperceptions, and the general lay public looks at it differently than those who have really dug into it. And and have been able to find kind of the truth in the message, in the metaphors, and in the figurative language that can be so tricky in Scripture. And so it was really comforting and enlightening for me to recognize that all these different Christian religions and uh, Judeo-Christian backgrounds were uncovering these beautiful truths about Eve's courage and about the meaning of her choices— for sure, the missing piece that became apparent is without the pre-mortal piece of the puzzle, without the big picture plan, like capital P plan, way back there in the councils in heaven, they were definitely missing pieces, but they were finding treasures in what they could hmm. get their hands on. And so piecing that together really helped me start to kind of parcel out the doctrine from the culture and I think in every religion, including ours, there's just a lot of cultural baggage that is really hard to wade through. And it creeps in all the time. I, we hear it all the time. And so it's it's tricky. It's a yeah. tricky thing to kind of tease out where the doctrine is. Right. I feel like Latter-day Saint doctrine 
in regard to the fall is so unique. Did you get any sense of how that is perceived by these people who are studying? Well, I think so much of that, they just, um, they, they just don't get the big picture. So they talk about the fall and some of them use that term. That's, that's a pretty LDS term, uh-huh. right? But the, one of the biggest things that was surprising to me is people who were writing about even Adam's story would uncover wonderful ideas and and beautiful truths, but almost always with a slant towards uh, of recognizing or saying, claiming, we know they're not real people, that this is just a story. This is like a legend. Mm. This is an origin myth but we can still find a lot of meaning in it. And that became a really interesting divergency, right? Between what we believe with them. No, no, they actually were our, our first Father parents and mother, on, yeah. here on earth in mortality. And, and I was just amazed to see how far they could come without accepting that truth because they were finding great things, but they were missing that part. The other part that that is amazing is, you know, we talk about heavenly parents. That's really something we're we're comfortable with. And that that is totally exclusive to us. I didn't hear anybody else pulling that in in anything that I was reading mm-hmm. in a broad sense. And and they would say, maybe they would get as far as saying, wow, how in the world could Adam and Adam and Eve have have figured out their marital marital relationship early on with no role models. That's amazing. And I would think, oh, no, you're missing such an important piece. They had amazing role models. They had divine role models. Of right. course, they saw this playing out. They were personally acquainted with them. So they knew um, who to follow, whose example to follow. So that was a, that was a really interesting difference. So interesting. You quote Dr. Camille Frank Olson in the book who says, our interpretation of Eve's role in the fall likely influences the manner in which we regard women in general. And in another spot, after talking about lost truths from the Bible, you say, perhaps nowhere are lost truths more troubling than throughout the account of Eve's life story because of the damaging effects they have had on women's well-being. This part of your book kind of blew my mind a little bit, just because I don't think that we think about how the way that society has perceived Eve and her decision to partake of the fruit, that that could potentially have had detrimental effects on women as a whole. What would you say, Mindy, are the cost of misunderstanding Eve's choice? Well, there's obviously a lot we can talk about on that. That's a really big <laughs> it's question. It's a loaded question. That, that is a very big question. But I think there are, there are two halves of this equation. There's the effect it's had on men and the way they uh, have been subtly influenced to perceive women and think of women. And then there's the effect that it's had on women. And I would say, and this... Forgive these broad generalizations. Like I understand they're going to feel like there's some stereotypes in here, but but just as kind of a starting point, I think some men have felt justified treating women poorly because if they cling at all to this so-called origin myth and they believe that she blew it, it's her fault, we're living in this hard, mortal, fallen world, then 
it's just this insidious, perpetuated notion that when life gets hard, it's her fault. It A woman was at the cause of that. And that's a terrible place to start out gender relations, right? That's That's so unhealthy and unhelpful. And then really equally pervasive is this idea with women that if they feel like somehow we're less than, that if we are being repeatedly treated as inferior to men, then that sinks in and we start to to feel less valuable, less needed, less important. And that obviously has huge repercussions. So both sides of this equation then kind of doubly affect women, that we're not living up to our privileges, our rights, and there's this serious loss for everybody. And I think what we find as we start really digging into the story and the way that I present it in the book is I start with looking at the fruit and looking at those two trees, because right off the bat, the thing, if we were to go out, you know, and do a very unscientific sort of on the street, every every person sort of interview, they would say, oh, well, she ate the apple and she made a mistake and that was evil. And the the roots of that go so deep. And so like one of the really fascinating bits, I think, is that the idea of an apple, there's no apple mentioned in the biblical account. And, and when I say the biblical account, I include Genesis and the Moses version that we are blessed with in the Pearl of Great Price. There's no apple. There are figs mentioned. There's other fruit in general, but but this apple idea is just something that has crept into culture really over centuries, you know, even even thousands of years. And when we look at where that came from, the Latin word for apple is malum, and that word has a homonym, which is evil. And so I think way back in time when when the Bible was being canonized and and we were having all these retranslations and multiple translations. Those scribes really enjoyed wordplay. And we see that in lots of places in the Bible. There's lots of wordplay that if we dig into the Hebrew or the Latin or the Greek, we can see multiple meanings of the words that they choose to use in different translations. And this one is just huge. The repercussions of this are huge. If you look at almost any classical artwork depicting Adam and Eve, you will see an apple, and it's clearly an apple. It's it's more recently that we see depictions that look like some mysterious fruit that maybe we don't recognize <laughs> immediately, but, but the apple is what has stuck. Another term that, that I think is really sticky and that really gets me, I, I don't like to hear it referred to this way, is we talk about them being cast out of the garden. And that's not a biblical phrase. That's not in Genesis or Moses. That's... Um, something that culture has attached to this. And obviously there's a really negative connotation with the idea of casting someone out. And it it sounds so awful. But what's actually in the scriptures is the phrases that God sent them forth from the garden and that he drove them out. And drove, you could look at in different ways. There are different connotations there. But the way that I always think of this is an experience I've had way too many times for my liking, and I know lots of other people have too, and that's driving my college students to the airport when they're going to leave to go back to school. And what that driving them out kind of feels like, that that is some of the most tender moments. I always feel like those 45 minutes in the car to the Salt Lake airport from our home, it's my last chance, like before the next span that they're going to be away. I got to think of all the important things I haven't told them and any great advice I have for the next couple of months that they're going to be away from me. And those are sweet, sweet times. And that's how I picture our heavenly parents 
kind of saying goodbye to them as they leave the garden is as this very tender scene. No um, fire and brimstone sort of casting out, which is often portrayed. So that's one example of that stickiness of culture. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. You have a whole chapter in the book. I think it's called Fruit. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Right Um, at the beginning. And I think it's interesting because in my mind, as I was reading that, I was like, you're so right. Like Snow White, the apple, evil, like all of the pieces started to come together. And I was like, that's spot on. And really, we don't know what the fruit was. Yes, yes. And it's everywhere in fairy tales and literature. We always are getting those same ideas that, oh, that evil apple. Yeah. You know, I mean, even her name, that like that it's strange that her English name of Eve sounds even like evil. That, and that's so unfortunate. I don't think there's, I don't think that's meant to have that connection, but I think that it's just one more thing that kind of fuels that fire of, oh, she blew it and we wouldn't be in this fix if she hadn't messed things up. And I just think that's totally inaccurate yeah. because we know that mortality was a really crucial piece of the puzzle. Both of those trees were good trees. There wasn't a bad tree that you know, she was choosing from. They were both good trees. It was a matter of timing and preparation and choice. It's really ultimately a story of agency. Yeah. I love another statement you make in the book, and you're talking about the interdependence between men and women. And you say, one cannot recognize their beautiful, balanced interdependence without first restoring her, meaning Eve, to her proper place. Why, Mindy, would you say that I feel like this will be a book that women will gravitate toward? Men, maybe not as much. Why does this story matter? Why does understanding this matter to men as much as it does to women? Well, actually, one of the things I've been really surprised by, not too many people have read the book, but I did have about a dozen beta readers that I had look at it. There were a few men in that mix, but it was predominantly women. And I was so surprised and extremely pleased with the responses I got back from spouses, from men who saw their uh, wives reading this book and picked it up and read it alongside of them. Mm. And without exception for those homes where there was a man and a woman there and they had a copy of my manuscript, the man would in fact pick it up because he was very interested in it. And um, one day in particular, I bumped into a husband of one of the readers and I almost didn't recognize him. I, I kind of just didn't make the connection quickly. And he approached and was just effusive about how meaningful the book was to him and went so far as to say that book has changed our marriage. He just went on and on saying that is what I needed that sort of reaffirmation of those truths and she needed to hear that. She needed to know that no we are absolutely balanced together N- neither of us are higher or lower than the other. We are a united interdependent team and with unified goals, we just can conquer the world together. You know, that's really kind of the attitude that he had about it. And I heard that from several other people as well. And it was just thrilling to me because I really intended from the start that this was not going to be 
just a woman's book. And yeah. I say that in quotation marks, air, air quotes there, <laughs> um, that this is for everybody. And my dedication page, it's to all my brothers and sisters. It's it's not just a women's message. I guess in some ways you can you can kind of liken that to something that we see culturally and in the media. We often feel like, oh, if there's a movie with a male main character, then that's a movie for everybody. But if it's a woman main character, then maybe that's a chick flick. That's that's a girl story or whatever. You know, you hear people say things like that. And we all know that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Every story can be for everybody. There's meaning that we can find everywhere. And especially in this case, this is a story for everyone to understand. It will help all of our relationships work better. Thank you. As a follow-up to that, why... Mindy, would you say that that is like, what is it about the story of Adam and Eve that has a transformative power if we allow ourselves to internalize it? Well, I guess the way that I would explain that kind of the nutshell version of that, I think we often start at the middle of the story, say where she partakes of the fruit, and then go forward from there, look at them leaving the garden look at what their life then looked like and maybe how they had to work toward repairing that situation, right? That's kind of the general worldly view of that story. We are so blessed with the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and the the continuing ongoing restoration of that gospel to have the first half of the story as well. And I think where other people look at this and say, this is a metaphor for all of our lives because we all sin, they sinned, And they got it patched up thanks to a savior. It's all better. It's going to be fine. We can start at the beginning of the story and say, this is the big picture. This is the plan. This is a story about agency. And for agency to really be effective, we'll have to have a savior. We have to have kind of the twin partner of agency, which is repentance, which Jesus Christ makes possible. And if we put kind of overlay our story over that first half of the story that we each made the same decision in the councils in heaven that in premortality we each had to make the decision do we want to trust our our elder brother can we trust Jesus Christ enough to venture into this uh, relatively unknown but I think we probably did know that it was going to be very hard I mean we understood different personalities then. We know that some spirits had progressed further than others had. Some had been more uh, diligent in their studying and learning than others had. And I imagine that we could look around those people near us, the spirits that were surrounding us and think, you know, I don't know that I really want that fellow over there to have the same degree of agency I have. Like that could end up being a problem for me or for my family or my posterity. And I think we really had to tap into trust at that point. I think that's the very beginning of the story of trusting our Savior, that He could make all of this work to our good. And to me, that's the beauty of this story that applies to all of us. And and that's where I'd love to see our focus shift to a little bit more than just seeing it as a story of sin and repentance into mortality. I like the first half and and I think it informs why it isn't a story about sin. The, the transgression involved is very different. It's not your typical sin by any means. It was a crossing of a threshold that was done by choice. 
because of the beautiful gift of agency. Thank you. That's super helpful. Another statement that I wanted to touch on in the book, you said, for millennia, the world has dismissed the story of Adam and Eve as simply a choice between good and evil, with the obvious conclusion that Eve chose evil. But on much closer inspection, we can discover and lead others to discover that the choice was, in fact, between certainty and uncertainty, security and risk, fear and faith. Eve's most remarkable choice had everything to do with stagnation versus progress. Hers was a decision to trust God. And you just kind of touched on this idea of trust, but can you explain how you learned that hers was a decision to trust God and what that can mean for us? Yeah, I think one of the tricky parts with this story is it's been simplified so much just and in the broadest sense, I'm talking the historical sense, it's come down to a story that can be told in like three sentences, right? It's it's just very straightforward and people simplify it that way. And in that simplification, I think we lose sight of the possibility that they may have been in the garden for eons. Like we have no idea of what that timeline looked like. We have some sense of the chronological order that things happened because of how the story's told in, in scriptures and through revelation and, and uh, modern day prophets and things. But we don't have a sense of if that, ha- if, if the choice came immediately on their being introduced to the garden or if it was ages later after tons of tutoring and, and conversation and learning with angelic messengers, their heavenly parents. You know, there's a lot of unknown there. We just don't know. And I took a lot of comfort for me personally. Some of Elder Holland's writings really meant a lot to me as he describes that they weren't being taught trivial things while they were in the garden, that they were learning the gospel. And he even uses the phrase in its entirety. I think that's something that the rest of the world doesn't even consider that, that she knew, because we think of them as being in an innocent state, but there's a difference between clueless and innocent, right? They they had plenty of so-called book learning, we could think of it, but no street smarts. They just hadn't experienced life yet, mortality, and uh, the workings of a body and spirit together. Those That creates some unique challenges, too, that they were totally unfamiliar with. So my personal opinion that helps me feel peace with the issues that we started out discussing is that she had a very good sense of the big picture before she made this choice. I think the issue of these two commandments that they had been given, that a lot of people term conflicting commandments, and that's where so many people get hung up on this story and they feel like there's this gross injustice in it right from the get-go, because how is that fair that they were given these these two mutually exclusive commandments? I think really the meaning behind that is, is so recognizable in our own lives because we are constantly presented with two mutually exclusive options. Sometimes it's two great choices that we have to decide between. Sometimes it's two rotten choices that we have to decide between. Sometimes it's just a matter of some that are better than others in various ways, and it's weighing all the pros and cons and having to come to that decision. And I think, to me, the beauty 
of the way they were presented with these two mutually exclusive options is it made it 100% about their agency and their choice. They had to choose one or the other because by virtue of of not choosing, they were making a choice. You know, they were both a choice and they needed to know that it was their decision, that it wasn't clear cut to them. So they couldn't look back later and think, well, I knew what our heavenly parents wanted us to do. And so we did that even though we weren't comfortable yet. There had to be this ambiguity there that they needed to decide when they were ready to go ahead. And I don't think that they were clueless moving ahead. I think they had a sense of how hard it would be and that there would be a savior to help them through this, that it was all going to work out because they knew and trusted our Savior, Jesus Christ. We know His is an infinite um, atonement. It's an infinite sacrifice He made for us. He was our Savior at the very beginning as much as He will be our Savior at the end. And that is a really important piece of the puzzle. I think that's such an important point that you bring up in that I think so many of us also have choices, like you said, many times choices between two great things. And we kind of have to own that decision. And I think looking back, if if we were forced to do it, or if we knew 100% this is what's supposed to happen, then we'd be able to say, oh, well, I I only chose it because of this. Or even another example is when your parents come out and tell you, this is what we'd like you to do. Well, then you can look back and blame it on your parents. But if your parents say it's your choice, then you just own it. And I think that there's something really beautiful and important in our Heavenly Father's plan about our owning our personal decisions. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think looking at it from a parental perspective really makes that clear to us and we can understand that better because I think any parent who's had children get to kind of the stage where they're leaving home or they're choosing who they want to spend the rest of their life with. never have kids get to that point. (laughs) It is scary. It's hard. (laughs) But, you know, really, those are the times more than ever, even though they're the most critical choices they have to make, I think wise parenting requires that we step back and say, you know what, I'm not going to tell you. I, I don't want the responsibility for influencing this because you're going to have to sleep in the bed you made, right? right. And like, you, this is yours and it needs to have been your decision completely. You know, I can try to teach you every, every bit of wisdom I might have, but I'm not going to make this choice for you. It has to be on you. And I just think that, that our heavenly parents absolutely, to a much greater extent, realized We don't ever want to be blamed for the hard stuff ahead. You know, it has to have been their choice. And in that sense, one of the beautiful positions that Eve is then in when we look at the story, the biblical account, is that she was like the original proxy. And we use the term proxy a lot in the church and in the temple. And she was very much a proxy with Adam once he chose as well and followed her lead for every single one of us. Because we know from the restoration and revealed truth through modern prophets and everything, that we each made that choice in in pre-mortality. And it wasn't something forced on a single one of us. And in fact, a lot of our cohort chose not to, that to them, it just seemed too risky. 
uh, too dangerous, too hard, or who knows what they were thinking. But I imagine there were probably a lot who thought it seemed too risky. And that's why they didn't choose to, to proceed with the plan. Fascinating. I noticed earlier something that you said. You said that you you said we're so blessed as members of the church to know, and I don't even remember what it was that you were talking about, but as you've gone through, I've noticed how many things are unique to our doctrine. How has kind of digging into this in this way increased your testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ? Oh, uh, like more than I can even find words to express. That was something I didn't recognize early on that that would be one of the very biggest takeaways is how grateful I am for the ongoing restoration. You know, it's we have so much of it right off the bat in the Book of Mormon. We're all studying in the Book of Mormon right now. And right there in Second Nephi chapter 2, wow, we have some absolutely critical truths that that the rest of the world has really missed out on. One of the most important things that we know from those teachings in chapter two is that Adam and Eve could not have children in the garden, that that wasn't an option. They were very much in a static place and it would require leaving for progress to begin. And that, in a nutshell, is the biggest missing piece that the rest of the world can't get over and get around because so many of them think, uh, for example, I have some close friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses and I've had some conversations with them and and I've said, do you think that we could be living in the garden right now if Eve hadn't eaten that? And they say, oh, absolutely. We'd all be there. She ruined it. We'd be living in paradise. And, you know, we just see that so differently. So these truths that we have really change everything and give so much more meaning to it, to the big picture. And and it, it changes everything. Yeah. I love that you said that you didn't see that being a byproduct of this research, but I, I volunteer with the Bible study nonprofit and we do these devotionals. And every time that I have to do a devotional, I'm like, oh, if I could use that Book of Mormon scripture, but I can't. Um, but it has increased my testimony of the Book of Mormon. It's so interesting to me how our testimonies of the gospel can be enhanced as we kind of dig into these things that are available to all. Yeah, that's exactly right. And actually an ongoing conversation that uh, my husband and I have had for the last couple of years is he really felt like, and I agreed early on, that this would be a great book to pursue as a non-denominational Christian book, mm-hmm. that this should be for everyone. And and so many people in the broad, wide world need this message. And as I got close to the writing stage, I was still kind of toying with that idea, thinking, could I do that? Could I make this uh, for everybody? And honestly, I couldn't. I could not figure out how I could possibly make sense of these issues without the restored gospel pieces of it. I, it's impossible. And it's heartbreaking. I mm-hmm. wish I could. But um, I've had I've had fascinating conversations. There was a really memorable flight I took one day where the man sitting next to me looked over my shoulder and noticed that I was doing some searching on my computer. And it made me so uncomfortable when he said, I can't help but notice that it looks like you're doing some archival research there. And I was, it was almost like I was going through through some microfiche sort of 
archival records looking for actually a, a primary source on one of the quotes we use in the book. And he was so kind. He he said, I really don't mean to pry, but I work for Amazon and I'm one of their leads on search engines. And I'd love to show you how I think I could help you find what you're looking for in oh, a much wow. easier way. And I mean, it was amazing. I thought, oh my word, miracle on the plane <laughs> right here. But as, as we kind of got past that and he showed me some cool tricks and things, he said, well, what is it exactly that you're working on? And when I told him a very brief overview, just from a broad Christian standpoint, he was thrilled. He said, oh, I need this book and my parents need this book. They need this book more than anyone. And and we're all Christian and my girlfriend and I would just love this. And I'm going to watch for this to come online. And I'm going to be one of your first people to order it. And I'm going to track you down and have you sign my copy. And, you know, it was all of this. And it just, it was such an interesting moment to think, you'll be surprised when you realize that <laughs> this is in fact kind of uh, unique to, to one subset of Christianity here, but but I hope that other people do pick it up, and I hope to have some really great missionary discussions because of it. So it, it applies to everyone. Yeah. We just happen to have the missing pieces. For sure, 100%. Before we get to our final question, I want to know, Mindy, how you would say this study of Eve has changed your life? Well, so many ways. I mean, like you you just pointed out, my testimony of the restored gospel has just skyrocketed to new levels, and, and I'm sure it has a lot further to go as well, but it's exciting that I feel like I've made some progress in that regard. But I think ultimately on just a moment-to-moment, day-by-day basis, it has just helped me be a much happier person. I think I really feel joy and peace concurrently, regardless of what's going on. Because I look now and I say, my, my family it probably gets real tired of me using this phrase, but I just say, ah, oh, mortality, that's mortality for you. You know, that's just all part of the plan. And well, what can we learn from that? And, and I just see things through a lens of everything being a learning experience, whether we get it right the first time or it takes 10 times to get it right. It's all about the process of exaltation. I think ultimately, my viewpoint on exaltation has really shifted where I don't see it as a destination so much anymore as something that happens when we finally cross that finish line, but as an ongoing sanctifying process that happens every single day as we just try to make sense of how to get through mortality while collaborating with our Savior. And that's that's really a critical piece of it is that it's it's not necessarily meant to be possible without his help. I think that it requires his help to be able to get through. And I hope, I hope that the biggest takeaway message from the book and, and what I build up to through the course of the book and at the end of the book is the unbelievable need we have for a Savior to help us every single day just make the best and help everything work for our good. And I just believe so strongly that he can do that and that that that's why we're here and going through this and experiencing these often very hard, difficult, sometimes awful things is to learn that He can make everything work for our well-being and benefit. And we're becoming like God by going through this process. Well, that is a perfect lead-in to our final question, um, which my my goal with this podcast, especially this year, is to center everything around Jesus Christ. And so I love that you brought it back to Him because He is 
the the center piece of all of this. Mindy, what does it mean to you to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, I love that question. I listen to your podcast a lot, and I always love hearing how people answer that. I think with an Eve perspective, that it it just is crystal clear to me that to me, all in means accepting the good and the bad, the hard and the easy, the comfortable and the uncomfortable, the scary and the routine, that it's just all part of the fun mixed bag that we get to learn from. And I I really am enormously grateful for Eve's example and that faithful courage that she demonstrated throughout her life and how we can follow that lead that that it's all good. I I used to kind of laugh when people would say that and think, no, it isn't actually all good. There are some things that are really bad and yucky and awful. But now I really can say with the conviction deep in my soul that it is all good. It will all work out and bring it on. We can do it. We can handle it with, with the help of a loving Savior. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mindy. You're welcome. Thank you. We are so grateful to have had Melinda Wilwright Brown with us on today's episode. Melinda's book, Eve and Adam, will be in Deseret Bookstores later this month, but you can pre-order the book now using the code ALLIN6 to get 15% off between now and March 14th. Again, that's ALLIN6, and that code can be used until March 14th. Thanks to all of you for listening and to Derek Campbell of Mix It 6 Studios, as always, for making us sound good. We'll be with you again next week.